I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining. We're a podcast. You always pause so much. Do you expect it to be me next? No, no, it's for effect. Oh, all right. Sorry, should I interrupt? Been, I, I, I'm digressing. You, you interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah, should have been in radio. Go ahead. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast about two guys shooting the breeze on international trade, business, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll talk about trade and agriculture with Doa Abdel Motal, talking about things like farm to table, food miles, and of course, cow farts. Yes, really. And as always, we'll have the usual news roundup and even a special guest star. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, folks, welcome to episode 18. It's a big number. 18 is also the atomic number of argon. Going to keep that going until it dies. This is the hill I will die on. Argon. Argon. Okay. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's just know the atomic number is 18. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 18 is also the age I graduated high school, which is starting to seem longer and longer ago. But that's that's neither here nor there. Is there a little tear? Is a little tear coming yeah. out? Yeah. My, uh, tear! That- <laughs> Hashtag Umberto. Umberto was right. But that's neither here nor there. I'm digressing. You digress. That's another podcast. I think it's, this may be like a birthday reflection that's, you're having. That's that's right. I did celebrate my, my birthday. And a young man never tells his age. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 33. <laughs> Whoops. Anyway. That slipped out. Anyway, but we're, we're digressing. We're digressing. My personal demons are, are another another story. So let's just jump into this episode. But before we get to the hate mail segment, we here at Tradesplaining, we have some very exciting news. We want to welcome Michelle to the podcast. Michelle has recently joined us as an assistant production assistant. Yes, I said assistant twice, I know, who will be assisting us in all aspects of pre and post production. See what I did there? That's all production. That's all of it, basically. We're delighted to have her join. But since this podcast is not just about us, wink, wink. Uh, Okay. News uh, to me. Yeah, we wanted we wanted to bring Michelle in and have her introduce herself to our listeners firsthand. So Michelle, welcome aboard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Well, I'm very happy to finally be so formally introduced into a podcast. Like you mentioned, my name is Michelle. I'm a podcasting enthusiast. Probably heard me before in a couple other podcasts, but they shall remain nameless because there's no free promo around here. Yes. Thank you. She knows. But anyway... This is basically just to let you know that whenever your wonderful hosts mention the team, they are telling the truth. There is a team. It's just one person, basically me. It's like that Spice Girl song, you know, tonight is the night when two become three. <laughs> the millennial girls will get that joke. I'm, I'm very happy that I can now consider myself Gen Z just because I don't get that reference. Thank you very much. I do feel like we've got an ally. I've got an ally now. It's just folks that don't get arty. <laughs> It's a long list. But I think we we have, a, I mean, listeners will be thinking this question. So Michelle, why did you agree to be part of this? I just like trade. I kind of ended up into it and I ended up listening to your podcast because it was funny and a good way to enter topics without being too scared. So I decided to join, try to help people understand trade a little bit better through comedy. And do you, you're kind of Genevoise kind of, or you spent a lot of time in Geneva. So are you also a connoisseur of like Geneva, weird little things that happen in the news here? What he really wants to know is, have you had your bike stolen? And we should have actually asked this in the interview process. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I, I was surprised it didn't come up in the interview, either that or the kebab thing. Well, I haven't ever had a bike in Switzerland, so I just walk. I get really scared of biking. So yeah, I haven't had it stolen because I haven't had one. Cyclists are a little, 
rough around the edges. Well, we can move directly to the kebab question. Parfum de Beirut or... Parfum de Beirut, 100%. Ah, yes. This, okay. This is a hill. Ting, 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 ting. This is a hill I will gladly die ting, on. Ting, ting, ting. I think we need a special sound effect here. No, I mean, I agree. I think it's just the first kebab you come across in Geneva. And so it holds a special place in your heart. You know, when the in the intro tour at, at university, they they sort of bring you to Parfum de Beirut. So. That's because it's, it's like the Trump Tower. They've got their name emblazoned in gold above half of Paquis. That's just bad marketing. Whichever line is shorter at 2 a.m. is also a very important principle to apply. No, no, no. <laughs> I can I can make my own kebabs, though. I have done that. That experience at 2 a.m., that is wild. Ah, fantastic. You've got like one of those meat triangles? No. Yes, in my little tiny apartment, I have one. Just kebab spinner. <laughs> Some people have a Christmas tree at their entrance. She's got a kebab stand. I saw a guy building one of them. You put pieces of meat on top of each other and of then you course. build it. What did, how did you think they made it? You thought it was an animal that comes in a canonical <laughs> shape? <laughs> Great. Is there anything else we should ask you, Michelle? What is one of your special superpowers? So I'll stretch the definition of superpower and say that I can make TikToks, but only to One Direction music. So I have three TikToks on my page and they're all based on One Direction music. So would it be too easy of a layup to say that your TikTok videos really only go in One Direction? Yes. Well, then, once again, we want to thank Michelle for for joining the team. We think she's going to be a great addition and looking forward to have her join us and take trades planning to the next level. Next level. Now, let's just jump right into the listener feedback slash hate mail segment. The first one is from Jerseyboy8820, who wrote us to say, yes, that's a real name. He wrote us to say that he was afraid that the show would be too wonky for him when he first started listening, but now admits that the opposite is in fact true. He says that he's been very impressed by the way we talk about topics that he would otherwise never have focused on in a very easily digestible way. And no, I did not write that myself. And he also learned something new every episode, which I think we're most proud of. He also says, stop making fun of Jersey. It's mainly that, wasn't it? It was, that was the, I guess this was all of a sort of a, a hook. <laughs> quick comma. Yeah. yeah the yeah, main exactly. th- thrust of his argument was stop making fun of Jersey. Yeah. And I will say, I will do that when... Jersey stops making fun of itself. So thanks for your input, Jersey boy. Also, Bruce Springsteen sucks. Yeah. Okay. We, we also had one other important thing we wanted to clarify. Go back one, to Bayonne. <laughs> one person sent us a message. Which just, it just had the hashtag euthanize trade with a question mark. So I think it's a good chance for us to clarify that when I said euthanize trade, I meant youth like young folk. Thanks, Dr. Kevorkian. We want to go younger with this. Yeah, that was an own goal. Nice trade. That was an own goal. So it's a good thing, folks. Yeah. Anyway, keep those comments and questions coming. Write to us at trade.splaining at gmail.com or on other platforms such as... I think you do. You're, you're on a roll. You just keep going. I, Twitter. I, I, I want to see if you've actually memorized Twitter, it. Twitter, where we're called something around trade-splaining and then that <laughs> other one... <laughs> Oh, God. He'll get there one day, folks. As Rob said, feel free to keep writing us. Send in your questions, comments, diatribes, suggestions to trade.splaining at gmail.com. Also, feel free to reach out to us and find us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. Feel free to also hit the subscribe and like button on any app that you have us on. They all have a like button, I think. Or uh, something. Yeah. So have the, you, hit the button. Yeah. Hit the button. Many of the reactions you can have, like celebrate. Do do it all. Whatever floats your boat. Hug trades plan. And also, this is something we've been seeing lately. Feel free to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if that floats your boat. As I've said before, you have five minutes to write that food review on Yelp about that bad falafel you ordered. You can do the same thing for our podcast. So we're equivalent to a bad falafel. Uh, a good falafel. Where are we in 
relation to the bad falafel. We're more important. On the falafel spectrum, we're, yeah. we're in Alamir territory. We're a good, good falafel. Yeah, we're not that bubblegum shrimp that is parfum de Beirut. But that's neither here nor there. Neither here nor so there. So review us like a bad falafel, folks. Well, folks, last week we talked a lot about trade and sustainability. We had Ron Steenblick on to join us and talk a little bit about that. This week, we're going to continue on that theme, but focusing more on agriculture and trade specifically. And in that vein, there's been a lot of new segments that have caught our eye recently, and we'd like to point out a few of those for you. As you'll remember, this is the podcast that brings you the news after it becomes news, but before you actually read it. Is that... that that's our tagline. That's a good tagline. Yeah, that's, that's a, a winner. Tagline. Anyway, let's start off with Switzerland, a country we of know course. a little bit about, right. our adopted home country. The Swiss are voting on June 13th on two laws related to agriculture, which have a trade component. Now, Rob, I know this is a bit of your baby. You're the sustainability Absolutely. guy. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So there's two votes here in June, which kind of capture what we've been talking about. So they're domestic legislation, domestic referenda, but they have a trade component. So the first is about the use of pesticides or chemical agents on agriculture. And this referendum says within 10 years, all of this would be banned, including imports. So it speaks exactly to the issue we've been discussing. How do we have a transition to more ecological agricultural practices here in a small country, which is very open economy and exposed to a lot of trade, while being in line with our commitments? So a lot of the critics on the one hand say, Swiss agriculture is already moving in the right direction. So why this? But in the second instance, they say this may not be consistent with our commitments in international trade agreements because we're going to be outlawing a bunch of chemicals that normally should be able to be traded. So are we in a situation where we're constrained by trade agreements in doing the right, from doing the right thing? So that's the first vote. The second, this is about roughly about clean water and safe food in Switzerland. But essentially what it says is they want to eliminate subsidies to Swiss producers who do not follow ecological ways of producing. Seems fine, right? We're not saying don't do it. We're just saying we're not going to subsidize it. So it's particularly focused on use of antibiotics, imported fodder and fertilizer, stuff that does not preserve biodiversity. So broadly, they're saying, if you don't follow good practice, we won't subsidize you. Critics say what this is going to do is reduce their productivity, and we're going to import more things that are produced in a way we don't support. So again, it's a domestic policy issue. Who do we subsidize and how should be our choice? But could it lead to a perverse situation where we're importing more things that are produced in a way we don't want? So two, I think, very topical votes. Both look like they may succeed, which could change Swiss agriculture quite a lot. It could be a model potentially for other markets. For, for the better, I would say as well. But this is not something that I've been following quite closely. But have as part of this referendum, are they going to then say, okay, these are the industries we will subsidize? So if you are producing agriculture in a more sustainable way, this is where those subsidies will go? Or they just say, we're going to stop the bad subsidies? Because then you, I could see the argument that the people against this have where it's saying we'll just import more of the stuff that's already being produced sustainably, at least in the short to medium term, I would imagine. In, in that, there's a, there'll have to be legislation after. But the danger is, what it says is, if you do not produce this way, you may not receive a subsidy. I see. So you have to prove you can do it. And I think the critics would be right in line with what you're asking, which is it doesn't have any trade implication at all, this subsidy bill. So let's say I follow ecological practices, my production goes down, I need to import more carrots. The carrots are done by being nuked from outer space by... Sounds aggressive. <laughs> some, some other country. Speaking of agriculture, New Zealand, everyone's second favorite island state after Australia has been planning for the golden age of robotics, quote unquote, in the agricultural sector. Tell us a little bit about that. It's something we've been scanning. It's a kind of future of work, but also automation kind of thing. So one story from New Zealand, they've had difficulty 
getting enough labor to do horticulture, to do picking and so on, because they don't have ability for people to come in and do it. So it's kind of accelerated automation. And literally, they're looking at things like how to you know, manage shortage of labor, how to be competitive in global markets, and also how to be very precise with sustainability. So these are the things they're thinking about. How do we address this with automation? And because they've had to face it very rapidly, they're going to have robots who are doing planting, monitoring of soils, who are doing monitoring of weather. All these things you kind of trusted a farmer to do. I kind of know the weather. I kind of know how much water it needs. I kind of know the quality of soil or things you were doing in different ways could could be automated. And this could lead to a, a massive change in the way this sector is done. Could be for the better, for instance, precision in terms of sustainability, better data. So we know which is a sustainable carrot and mm. which isn't. Uh, better application of, of agricultural inputs. There's not a lot of waste. There's not over-fertilizing and so mm. on but because the precision is there. On the other hand, we're going to see, again, a drop in the number of people that are working in this. And we'll also see in places where we work, they're going to be competing with this super efficient new type of agriculture. So will the developing world be able to keep up or should they? I think the main thing for me that I take away is that, again, this is just yet another example of how COVID has been accelerating, has, has made us jump, whereas before we were being slightly nudged in one direction. Mm. And that is because of the restrictions that New Zealand has put on immigration to the country. They basically sealed off the island because of COVID. They're being forced to think of new ways of solving problems within agriculture, in this case, a shortage of labor. So I think it's really interesting to see how quickly these types of things are being adopted by countries. And even around Geneva, we see super advanced, very, very capital intensive greenhouses, which don't use any soil, for instance. So uh, these Soil is overrated. In hashtag... Hashtag it's overrated. Yeah. In fact, it is overrated. So you get amazing productivity and you you have amazing control over when it uh, matures and all these uh, amazing things. I'm talking so. about hydroponics. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, New Zealand, by the way, we were kidding. I, I love you. Crocodile Dundee, completely overrated. Anyway, moving on. I wonder if there's a specific New Zealander that you're directing this. They're, they're, they're kind of, they're few on this planet. There are relatively few of them. I think New Zealand is just a cool country. I think they just do things the right way. And I think that's because they have to. They're, they don't have the luxury of getting things wrong. It's, it's not landlocked, but it's an island. It's out in West Pacific. <laughs> it's like right next to the Galapagos. I can't even barely find it on a map. And yet they export so much cool stuff. Lord of the Rings wouldn't have happened without New Zealand. Peter Jackson is from New Zealand. Yeah. The director. Did you know that? Viggo Mortensen? We would not have Viggo Mortensen as a star. Nobody would know. He's definitely not a New Zealander. No, he's not. But who picked him to star in that movie? Somebody from New Zealand. We would not care about rugby if it wasn't for New Zealand. I wouldn't have butter in most of the Asian hotels I've been to. Yeah. I wouldn't have my merino wool skiing shirt if it wasn't coming from sheep in New Zealand. You sure that's New Zealand? Yeah, pretty sure. I looked this up. I'm an informed consumer. Anyway, New Zealand, we love you. Moving on to shrinking salmon in Alaska. This one's yours already. We're talking about fishery subsidies with Ron Steenblick last week. This is very pertinent to that. So tell us about that. So we've been talking a lot about climate change. Obviously, it has uh, linkages with this episode, particularly the last one as well. And this time it can be affecting your salmon delivery and may alter U.S. export sales of this widely sought after fish. It's one of the only three things I can actually cook reasonably well. Salmon. Salmon. In the oven. No. Pan seared. Oh, very nice. Anyway, 40% of the world's wild salmon comes from Alaska, where fishermen are seeing fish size shrink. Scientists are also still delving into these precise causes, but the consensus is that climate change is the main culprit. The size conundrum could end up disrupting global trade flows, actually, and that is because American exporters may soon find they're selling more to Japan 
which favors these smaller fish, whereas European markets, especially those with heavy demand for smoked salmon, looking at you, Denmark, prefer bigger products. Hashtag size matters. It does. It does. We, we were joking, but it does matter. It's also it's the latest example of how climate change is changing how food is produced and where it gets shipped, I think. So if you're looking at it from a stock market perspective, agriculture futures have surged recently as the bad weather makes it harder to grow crops at a time when food inflation is already on the rise. So you're seeing a direct consequence of fluctuations in weather brought about by climate change. And it's something we should... St- in, let's say in our, in our business of trade promotion, we've got to start thinking, where is the supply going to come from? For instance, we read a lot of this about coffee. Many of the places where coffee is grown will no longer be good hosts for the kind of coffee we currently drink. Could be up, it's, it's many percent, 20, 30 percent that will no longer be within 10, 15 years, we'll be able to do it. So how is this going to affect trade flows? How is it going to affect the people that are there? And uh, it's also a great mention for Ron's point, which is management of fish stocks is also extremely important, well beyond anything to do with subsidies. I think to your point on what is going to happen because of climate change, I think anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen and how trade flows are going to be shifting definitely in the long term don't know, frankly, right? But I think what we're seeing is that there's a premium that we're going to have to pay with regards to this volatility that's coming about. So the distortions in in growing patterns and and seasonal changes and things like this. So we're already seeing a, a hit to your wallet. So that avocado toast you love so much may just get more expensive. So just in terms of the adjustments we have to make to some of these things, U.S. farmers are also looking for support to try to adapt to climate changes. That's right. So last week, Joe Biden, in his first speech to Congress, which capped off his first 100 days in office, which is kind of a, a big deal in the U.S., Biden has called for cutting U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 percent by 2030. Now, this goal to slash U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, however, hinges in part on these farmers and agricultural companies changing the way that they manage their fields and their feedlots. Now, the farm sector says it will need the government's help to make it happen. Hashtag socialism is alive and well. (laughs) The, (laughs) The Biden administration effort outlined in April, which also include possible trade tools like border adjustment taxes to achieve this goal, has drawn support from surprisingly from agribusiness giants like Tyson Foods, Cargill and CF Industries. Three companies not traditionally known not for sustainability, on, yeah. any of these things. The chickens at Tyson chickens Foods are actually general. bigger than me. Yeah. So they've also been pr- pursuing their own environmental commitments. And again, I think this links back to our discussion with uh, Dorothy bowman Pauly a few weeks ago on how these voluntary commitments are becoming a bigger and bigger part of, of how companies do business. Individual farmers, on the other hand, whose participation, as I said, is critical to meeting these goals, are weighing the potential costs and benefits. So they say that government support will also be needed, surprise. And this is due to the fact that they often face very thin profit margins, which means that these individual farmers have tended to be wary of regulations that add costs or complexity to their operations, something which is going to have to happen if these countries are to reach these climate goals. And finally, I think it should be pointed out that these farmers have already adopted a lot of climate smart practices to help alleviate things like soil erosion, which you just mentioned before, Rob, which again is positive in its own right. Being able to meet all of these goals will, again, require that added government investment to speed up that adoption. So I think, uh, again, it's to find it kind of interesting that both sides are looking for the government investment to help facilitate this. Yeah, I think it's I think they're right because it's across the whole economy. One farmer can't solve this issue. One farmer can't do all the adjustment for it. And one industry can't absorb all the issues that are out there. So you say, farmer, absorb it all. The rest of us consumers still want cheap food, and we still don't want to subsidize your transition. So I I get it. I think it's also a nice combination with what Switzerland's trying to do. We see 
how this will be affecting many countries. And, it, and of course, it has trade implications when the U.S. starts providing support to these farmers. That can also be a trade issue. I've heard that from my neoliberal libertarian friends that subsidies are a war crime. But they love tax cuts. So the, the, the fabulous thing is that they can give the oil industry $7 billion through tax cuts. And that's it? not a subsidy. Irony. What is it? Anyway, so that brings us to a clue. We digress. We're digressing, but we hate you, you neoliberal shills <laughs> of the world. Just kidding. I don't hate anybody. Who buy my wheat? Who buy my corn? To feed my babies when Our guest this episode is Doa Abdel Motal. She's a senior counsel in the WTO Agriculture and Commodities Division and has also served as the former executive director of the Rockefeller Foundation Economic Council on Planetary Health. She's also the former chief of staff of the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development, IFAD, and is also former deputy chief of staff of the World Trade Organization. She's also a writer, Artie. Her latest book, Antarctica, The Battle for the Seventh Continent, was released in September 2016 and has been nominated for the 2018 Mountbatten Best Book Award. So, Doa, thank you for joining us on Tradesplaining. Why don't we just jump in with the first question, and that's by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the field of trade in your particular area? What's the journey been like, and how have your experiences changed over that time? Okay, well, hi, guys, and uh, thank you for having me on this program. I came to trade with an environmental background. I was working in the Egyptian Ministry of the Environment. I'm Egyptian for many years before going off to the UK to do environmental studies. At that point, I was desperate to get a job, and I, I applied for about 161 jobs, I remember, <laughs> and the WTO was the number 161 that came through. <laughs> so I ended up in the WTO because I learned at the time, to my surprise, that they had an environmental department. So I joined that department, worked there for a number of years, I've worked on the settlement of commercial disputes with an environmental angle as well. And then I became deputy chief of staff of WTO and then moved to Rome to become chief of staff of a, of a UN agency called the International Fund for Agricultural mm. Development. So from environment, I went to agriculture and food security and food safety. I also worked for the World Food Program, but I kept my environmental interests going. So I, I worked for National Geographic for a while, traveling with them to the Arctic and the Antarctic, and published a book called Antarctica, The Battle for the Seventh Continent. Wow. Uh, that's actually a very cool journey. I think we have a lot of people listening who are at different stages of their career who think we have to have a plan. And I think you help yeah. us understand you don't have to have a plan. We're asking for a friend is what he means. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Artie, you don't have to have a plan. <laughs> Maybe now is probably a good time to, to talk a little bit about the links between the environmental considerations and agriculture mm -hmm. more broadly. So Doa, is there a link? Is that a, too easy of a question? Does it make a difference that I'm buying bio stuff at the Migro or co-op? So, yes, of course, there's a link between agriculture and the environment. You, you can't have agriculture without consuming natural resources. Agricultural land takes up 40% of the global land area, 70% of the world's total freshwater resources, and it creates land use change. So you deforest. Very often you have to deforest to, to create space for agriculture, and that causes biodiversity loss. And there are a lot of issues associated with fertilizer use. The, a lot of the dead zones in our oceans and in our lakes and in our rivers come from eutrophication, waste fertilizer that, that, that runs off into water bodies and, and, and kills them, basically. So, yes, the link is strong. So let's bring trade into it. 
So is, is agricultural trade part of the problem and what are the implications of that? Well, first of all, I think when, when people say they're always thinking of international trade, they're thinking of trade between countries, trade between continents. But I think it's important to understand that every time an individual goes into a supermarket or a grocery store to buy something, they are trading. Trade is local. Trade is not just between countries. It also takes place within countries. And so there's all this emphasis on international trade in particular is being the cause of pollution. When food moves from one country to another, then international trade is sort of contributing to greater pollution. And so that's a mistaken understanding of trade because trade moves even within countries and it has to. Not everybody can grow their food and food has to change hands so that we feed everyone within a country, across countries and across continents. Now, international trade feeds one in every six people around the globe. So international trade is vital. There are parts of the world that can't live, can't feed themselves without international trade. Take all of the Arab Gulf countries, which are essentially desert. These countries import about 85% of their food. So there's if, if we were to stop international trade in food, there would be starvation in some parts of the world. Now, is trade in food damaging to the environment? Well, I think the way we produce our food obviously needs to change. The way we compose our diets needs to improve. And those are issues that will be tackled and are being tackled this year in the United Nations Food Systems Summit that the UN Secretary General has called for and that will take place along the uh, margins of the UN General Assembly. So there will be discussion of the nature of our diet. The world population is growing. People want to consume more meat. Livestock is 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. There's a need to produce more food with less natural resources. We're already getting better at that. So if you look at what it took to produce our food back in the 1960s, we can produce as much food globally as we did back then with 30% of the farmland. So we're getting a lot more out of land than we did before. And we can get even more out of land as we go forward. We don't need to continue to expand agricultural land to feed ourselves as technology goes forward. Now, because food moves and has to move for our food security, a big question then is how is it moving? What is the form of transportation that's being used? And of course, some forms are less polluting than others. So then, I mean, I think the, the discussion of food systems is a really good one. So it goes from my refrigerator all the way back to where the green beans are grown in Kenya. And there's a lot of waste and a lot of inefficiency along that chain. So what, I mean, the Food Systems Summit will tell us a lot of things, but what should listeners take away from that? What should they, in a way, do differently? Or And in our work, maybe, what should we do differently? Okay. Well, in terms of what lists should do differently, listeners presumably are consumers. So we're talking about the consumer. And you asked earlier about food labeling and whether we should pay attention to food labels and issues such as food miles and ethical shopping more generally. Look, I think, I think there's actually, and surprisingly and counterintuitively, a need for listeners to beware from the issue of food miles and, and to, to, to think more deeply about things like ethical shopping and running after labels that tell you various things about the environmental footprint of a product. Because in the end, trade in food is trade in land, water, and energy and many other natural resources. So when you're trading in, uh, in an eggplant or you're trading 
trading in a zucchini or you're, you're trading in the water that it took to grow that vegetable. You're trading in the land that it took to grow that vegetable and the energy that was used in the tractor and the irrigation system, etc. Now, the UNDP tells us that if a country such as Egypt, mine, were to try to grow all of, all of its food, it would need three river Niles, not one. So clearly we need to trade in food. We need to trade in food, not just because some parts of the world don't have food and absolutely need their food to come from elsewhere, but we need to trade in food for environmental reasons. Because you can't ask a country like Egypt to use its last drop of water to feed itself. And you have to allow that country to be able to purchase its food from elsewhere and to use the little water that it has, probably as drinking water supply. So, so I think there's a need for consumers to beware from the whole sort of food miles argument and to automatically label food that comes from far off lands like a kiwi that comes to you in Europe from New Zealand as something that you shouldn't touch because it comes from so far. That's the, Those arguments can often be false because distance is not the only consideration. Distance is not the only environmental consideration. And you mentioned beans. There are a lot of, there are a lot of beans that are air freighted from Kenya to the UK. Should the British consumer automatically switch to, to beans that are grown in the UK? And the answer from an environmental point of view is actually no, because in Kenya, they use manual labor. Nothing is mechanized. They don't use tractors. They use uh, cow dung as fertilizer. They use low-tech irrigation systems. So it's actually better for the environment to be eating a Kenyan bean in the UK than it is to be eating a locally grown one. So, so what can consumers do? Consumers need to be more analytical. They need to go deeper into the problem and they need to be asking harder questions like how is that food traveling and coming to me and what can we do about improving the mode of travel in particular for air freighted goods should planes be flying that are not that are not filled to capacity how can we improve the logistics of food trade so they need to be asking things like that instead of automatically shunning food that has traveled a long distance and i guess also watching their own waste so waste at the consumer at the point and the waste at the retailer Food waste is a big issue. At the UN Food Systems Summit this year, there will be, that issue is certainly on the table and will be discussed. There are two sides to this issue. One is called food loss and the other is called food waste. Food loss is the food that's damaged before it gets to the consumer. And believe it or not, in Africa, about 40% of the food that is grown is lost. It's lost to poor storage. It's lost to pests and, pest and diseases, etc. And then there's the issue of food waste, which is the food in supermarkets and on our plates that is that is wasted. So it's edible food being discarded prematurely or unnecessarily. And if you take the average American consumer, they waste 20 pounds of food each month. So there's a need clearly to tackle, you know, both of these issues, loss and waste. Now, a lot of countries are, are campaigning on this issue. China is this year in particular has launched a very serious campaign against food waste. It's called Clear Your Plate Campaign, and it's being accompanied by very harsh legislation on food waste. On the trade side, we have a trade facilitation agreement that will play, and that is playing, a very important role in preventing food waste, because it is cutting the bureaucratic customs procedures that, that cause food to stay 
in customs and at the borders of countries for an excessively long time, meaning that a lot of perishables are made to rot. And so the trade facilitation agreement by allowing food to move faster into and out of countries will hopefully be a major contributor to the reduction of food waste. So I, I really appreciate the, the depth and the nuance you gave in that answer, but sometimes I feel like people as consumers, there's a, so much for them to, to take into account. They just want to get their food the quick most easily accessible way possible. So if you, bearing this in mind, if you had a magic wand and could change one or two things, what would it be? Look, sadly, the wand is not magic. The solutions are are difficult. However, I think we need to go back to basics, which means our soils. Our soils represent 90% of agriculture's greenhouse gas mitigation potential. They are the largest terrestrial carbon pool. Our soils store 50 to 300 tons of carbon per hectare. So if we look after our soils, if our soils are in good health, they should be able to themselves offer a solution to the climate crisis and to significantly reduce the impact of agriculture on climate change. So we need to look after our soils. We've, I guess with this pandemic, we've discovered what it means to not be looking after our planet. And I think we can continue to food ourselves and world population can continue to grow, but we need to take care of our soils. So that's not a magic wand, but it's something that needs to really become a priority without thinking about more complex things, just doing that is incredible how much how much of the answer would lie in that. In terms of the consumer side, what, what can the consumer do? I would say not the consumer should not chase after myths and slogans. So a consumer running after a locally produced food, the whole concept of zero kilometer food, all of that is not helpful. It, it, it sort of it, it gives you a sense that you're doing something. It sort of makes you makes you feel less guilty but it, these are sort of false relief, if you will, because it's not necessarily the solution. So I would say uh, consumers not chasing after slogans, probably a contribution that a consumer can make. I guess I should go get that farm to table tattoo removed. <laughs> <laughs> I knew this because is a bad idea. <laughs> I'm sticking with the local wine because I can walk. I can walk before I go drink it and walk back. And it's bio. So it helps. Probably not, actually. It's probably not at all. They use plenty of pesticides. You see the helicopter going over at a certain time. Well, this isn't to say that all food labels are wrong or bad. I mean, there there are a lot of them that try to get at different aspects of the problem. But I I think in terms of the food miles issue and how long long of a distance a food has traveled to get to your plate, I think that issue needs much deeper thinking. And sort of superficial labels are not helpful or superficial... campaigns against internationally traded food are not helpful. And maybe maybe organic gets closest to, to the point you made, which is it does think about soil. It does think about soil quality. So organic is organic is an option. Obviously, the EU now has in its farm to fork policy as an objective, an attempt to expand the land that is grown organically, etc. But we have to remember that organic is a very, very small percentage of overall agricultural land today. So, so organic, organic is an option, but it's it's really it is yet to take off. It is yet to become a viable way forward for feeding the planet. It has a long way to go to get there. Rob, I know you had a a bovine-related question. Well, a friend wondered, 
what the contribution, this is a friend. Asking for a friend. Yeah. That's what it's called. What the contribution to global warming was of cow farts. Is that a major, is that, a, is it a major situation? <laughs> I have cousins, I have cousins who don't believe in climate change and they tell me it's cow farts. Well, they are problems. So, so like the livestock sector alone is 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the problem is methane, whichever way it comes out. So, so you can tell your friend that it's not a pretty picture and potentially a smelly one too. It's a global. <laughs> it's a global. It sounds horrible. So, and it's, yeah, exactly. And probably it's here to stay. I think I'm learning way more than I wanted to. I want to look that up now. Yeah. Google's cow farts. Thanks, Doa. We learned a lot about the link between agriculture and trade and especially sustainability aspects. So thanks for that. Now we want to switch to talk a little bit about you and to ask a, a few questions about your life uh, as an expat. So you're based in Geneva. And from here, looking back to your home country of Egypt, what do you notice that's different? What did you realize about Egypt after you left when you were looking back? Well, what I've discovered in myself, having moved out of Egypt and having lived in Geneva for many years now, is that chaos is desirable. A certain amount of chaos is desirable. It, it gives taste and color to life. So, but you have to remember, I'm from Cairo. So obviously I, I grew up in a lot of chaos and I and I moved to a place without any chaos. So the contrast could not be more huge. So what do I miss? Chaos. I, I can empathize with that a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Exactly. So obviously next next question that I know you you've been, you know, waiting for us to ask you in Geneva, have you had your bike stolen yet? It's one of the things they say you have to do when you become an expat in Geneva. So have you had a bike stolen here? Well, I have had worse. I've had my handbag, my house keys, my car keys stolen. So not my bicycle, but just about everything else, really. That that took a really, that went to a really dark place really quickly. We weren't expecting I remember when I first came here, they also had this uh, vol d'astuce where somebody distracts and grabs stuff. This was something that was really very present in the early 2000s. Was this in body Italy or... This was no, this was in Geneva, Switzerland on buses. You like Very throw a thousand. Isn't it? Yeah, it's it's so one thing Rob really loves to do is read the local news. It it's one of his favorite pastimes. So the question is, what is the most absurd local story you've heard? Doa, do you ever follow the the absurd local uh, local stories? Uh or even bring us one from Cairo? What is what is very strange in Geneva, possibly a, a story that I will create on this show, which is that with lockdown, Lake Geneva has turned into Caribbean water. When they when they stopped all the all the water taxis, they stopped all the traffic on the lake, all the traffic around the lake. I mean, it is just on a sunny day, you're in the Caribbean. You see turquoise blue water, you it is transparent all the way to the bottom, you see beautiful fish swimming so i think a story needs to be written about that actually because we've heard we've heard this about venice and other places but not really about geneva it's it's absolutely right dolphins coming back to sardinia <laughs> yeah not to lac Limon yet no not yet it's Loch Ness. <laughs> and yet the ducks are leaving They're and going. going to lac de neuchatel are they this is what well, i've read well, tens of thousands of ducks have moved to neuchatel they won't after we build that wall with there, there's already issues of immigration, duck, duck, <laughs> duck, duck migration, duck migration. So, I mean, we, we can't. We we have to finish off the episode off. with the the dessert topping that is interview questions. Yep, especially when it comes to trade splitting, and that is where in Geneva is your favorite kebab. Rob has his preferences. He usually asks leading questions. 
so I won't. But what I will say is that it's usually not Alamir, which I've been told is actually better than Parfum de Beirut. But we'll leave that up to you. To be scientific, yeah. we will leave it to okay. you. So your favorite kebab in Geneva? Being Egyptian and not Turkish, I prefer shawarma to kebab. And so my top local place would be Parfum de Beirut. So I, I can't believe you mentioned it for me, but you put it in second place. It, it, for me, it's definitely first. Correct answer. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's some bias there. This is, as I said before, this is a hill I will die on. Anyway, we want to thank Doha very much for taking the time out to, to join us and talk a little bit more about what is becoming an increasingly important topic and one which I think listeners of all stripes would will be interested in. If any of our listeners out there want to know more about the work that Doha is doing, they can find her on Google, uh, search Doha Abdel Motal. Also, you can search for her book online. Once again, it's titled Antarctica, The Battle for the Seventh Continent. Really interesting discussion with Doa, don't you think, Rob? Yep, I really enjoyed the conversation, and she was. I'm glad that you worked really out. Good. I'm glad that you got over your hesitance and your embarrassment to talk about cow farts, and you said it without laughing for a friend. That was a friend that I had asked about that thing. That was very important. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so you were talking about Robert Byrd before? Yeah. This brings us to this week in local news, the things you wouldn't believe it was true unless you lived in Geneva. However, to paraphrase Robert Byrd, all news is local. So there's a couple things on my mind. There's a very important thing that's happening in the United States. We're reaching peak chicken over there, according to what I'm reading. Apparently, we're chomping so many nuggets, KFC baskets, chicken patties, other types of chicken delights. That is a system-wide shortage, and apparently they can't even hire enough people to process the chickens. Also, pork futures are up because Americans are eating so much pork during their cooked breakfasts. That's because so many people are bringing home the bacon. Oh, God. Get it? But well, I, didn't, I didn't see that. Why didn't I see that? Cover? Take, please. So I got this impression <laughs> of people just chomping KFC and sausage all day long at their home office. I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to be doing? That's what I would be doing. If you could. Yeah. If, 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 if meat didn't cost 800% more in switzerland i can't imagine what i'd be like after the confinement in the u.s because you can also have taco bell delivery. and dunkin donuts and krispy kreme so perhaps this this is just another covid related issue i'm just looking forward to next week's story peak something that should be that's every week peak peak x peak something yeah. please, please write in and let us know if you've reached peak anything we did have peak toilet paper a couple of weeks ago in the suez situation Hashtag Billy Joel. Don't flush it again. I keep telling you, <laughs> or, don't flush it again. Or, or as my grandmother used to say when she caught us buying the expensive toilet paper, you're flushing your money right down the drain. Yeah, she was right. Yeah. Smart, smart lady. Smart lady. Two-ply. Two-ply? That was a long time ago. I, well, I said that for you to make you not feel out of place. <laughs> Actually, time. made me feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Anyway, there's more, there's more peak something. Tell us. Keep going. Also, the local newspaper had a poignant story. Of course, it's also about the U.S. The FDA is threatening to ban menthol cigarettes. And the FDA is the Food and Drug Administration. That's where they are. And uh, in particular, the they're, they're, this would affect the brand Cool with a K, K-O-O-L. Not to be confused with Daddy Cool by yeah, Bonham. <laughs> this is like Daddy Cool. I'll tell you why. Because I used to smoke those when I was a butcher. In the 1980s in the U.S. Talk about and smoked it, you know what? meat. What? They did make you look cool. With a K. Yeah. I even smoked the 100s, the longer ones. You are like the person John Hamm, Don Draper is talking about in Mad Men is you. Yeah, exact. Thank you. Except without the scotch or the nice hair. Yeah. I think this highlights the generational gap between us because I've never smoked a cigarette before. Really? Ever. How did you look cool? Well, therein lies the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's... Really sad, today's youth will not be able to learn to smoke with that nice, fresh menthol taste. And I think now we have a theme music for this episode. Daddy, daddy, daddy cool. cool. 
insert music here. Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest, Doa Abdel-Motal, for joining us in discussing trade and agriculture and giving us hope that if you keep applying, you'll get that dream job. Or worst case, you can go to Antarctica and work for National Geographic. Write a book. I'm the guy that they get the, the cheetahs to chase. My old they job. take the photos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already. Subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. Also, feel free to leave us a review, as I mentioned before, on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Or email us your questions, comments, diatribes, suggestions at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you on all things trade, the environment, or dad jokes. Hashtag euthanized trade. <laughs>